0: Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you this afternoon. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 is where we'll be at. And I think there's a little bit of an error on the bulletin. The sermon title is called Gospel That Bears Fruit. Gospel that bears fruit. Sin is stupid and has miserable consequences. Sin is stupid and has miserable consequences. Let me give you a personal example. It was in the eighties in Seoul, Korea. I must have been around five or six years old. I don't know what possessed me, but I once arrogantly bragged to all my first grade friends that I can beat up my older brother in a fight who is two years older than me. Of course, I wasn't hundred percent confident and my chances were pretty slim. But what started as a braggadociousness spiraled very fast into a lie and strife against my brother when my friends wanted to see me in action. They challenged me, don't just say you can do it, show us. So I invited my friends home after school one day and I waited for the perfect opportunity while my brother was playing with his toys, while he was completely unguarded and least expecting. I ran and pounced on his back And started punching his back over and over. And from then on, everything is a blur. But the last thing I remember is him throwing me off his back. And a large fist coming toward my face in slow motion. And after that, blackout. I don't know what exactly transpired after that. But I woke up with tissues in both of my nostrils bleeding. Which resulted in my brother being very, very angry with me. Which also resulted in me getting in massive trouble from my dad that night. Which resulted in me being very, very sad and regretful of my poor choices, which resulted in me being completely embarrassed at school when my friends laughed and made fun of me and told everybody that I got knocked out by my brother and that I didn't stand a chance. Perhaps this is the reason why they sent me away when I was seven years old. I don't know. But let me just drive the point sin is stupid and has miserable consequences. Sin is stupid, brothers and sisters and has miserable consequences, and that's part of what our passage this afternoon teaches us to a much greater and more serious degree, that the consequences of the works of the flesh is slavery and hell, whereas the fruit of the Spirit is freedom and life and unity. We're coming back to our study through Galatians in our series, There Is One Gospel, in which we have two more sermons, plus this one to finish out the letter, which we'll look to do this upcoming fall. But as we celebrate God's faithfulness and goodness in the three-year anniversary of our church, I thought this passage would be of particular encouragement to us as we reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ that bears fruit, and to be reminded again of the work that God is doing among us through His Holy Spirit. FYI, we'll be returning to Psalm 26 next Sunday, so continue reading two to three chapters of the Psalms so you can be on track to read the entire Psalms by the end of the summer. To give you some context for our text, the Epistle of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to address Gentile Christians who made up the churches in the region of Galatia. And Paul writes to them regarding the false teaching of the Judaizers who were insisting that these Gentile believers undergo circumcision and observe Jewish laws in order to be truly Christian and to be truly part of Christ's church. And so throughout the letter, Paul vehemently defends the doctrine of justification by faith, That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. In the previous passage, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, Paul had challenged the Galatians that they must either choose circumcision or Christ, judgment or justification, flesh or freedom, that there is no halfway salvation, that there is no middle ground Christian. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you are either a Christian or you are not a Christian, You cannot be partly a Christian. You are either dead or alive. You are either born or not born. And so following that challenge, Paul further clarifies what is a Christian and what is not by explicating two contrasting realities. What are the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit? What are the results of being under the law versus being under grace? What it means to be spiritually enslaved versus spiritually free? And what identifies citizens of earth versus a citizen of the kingdom of God? And so, from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, I want to share with you two exhortations for us to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Two exhortations for us to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one walk in the Spirit and live in freedom. Walk in the Spirit. And live in freedom from verses 16 through 21. And point number two, be in step with the Spirit and live in unity. Be in step with the Spirit and live in unity from verses 22 through 26. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray this word will impart in our hearts once again that sin is stupid and has miserable consequences. That no amount of our works will win us favor with God or make us righteous But even despite our sinful nature, it is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Spirit of God lives and works in us to bear fruit for our maturity, for our testimony, and for His glory. I pray that this word will encourage us and excite us to eagerly walk in step with the Spirit, which will result in us together continuing to advance the gospel as Jesus Christ builds His church. Amen? Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our weekly Sunday gathering. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, we especially welcome you today. As Brett mentioned, we have been praying for you, praying for God to lead you here this afternoon to gather with us, for you to hear God's word and to experience his love through this local church body. We pray that you would come to know Jesus Christ is a gracious and merciful and loving God, and we pray that you would repent and believe and trust in him today as your Lord and Savior, the Savior of your soul. So without further ado, let's turn now to His Word, which can be found on page 975 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, please, I want to encourage you, keep your Bibles open and refer to it often throughout the entire duration of the message as I read and preach, so that you know that this is God's Word to you, to grow you in faith and love for Him and His church. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 says this, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, and as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. Amen. How can we live by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Point number one, walk in the Spirit and live in freedom. Walk in the Spirit and live in freedom from verses 16 through 21. But look with me now to verses 16 through 18 one more time, which says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The first observation we can make are the three contrasting phrases in verse 16 and 18 and 22. But I say but if you are led by the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Paul, having just warned the Galatians to not use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh in verse 13, to not bite and devour one another and to watch out as such living will result in being consumed by one another in verse 15. In the following verses, Paul explicates the remedy by further unpacking what loving your neighbor as yourself means. How true freedom is expressed in loving and serving one another and not in serving oneself in the life of the individual believer as well as in the corporate life of the church. And so Paul says, instead of living by the flesh, I say to you, here's my charge to you. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, before we get to the meat of the text, we got to address the bones, the structure of the text And you'll see Paul addresses four times with the use of four distinct verbs in four different ways that living in true freedom is not by man's works. It's not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 18. Be led by the Spirit. Verse 25. Live by the Spirit. And again in verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit. And so I hope you catch the main message of the passage and how I got my points. Paul is emphasizing that freedom of the gospel is living by the Spirit of God from beginning to end. That salvation is God's work in and through us from start to finish. Amen? Now there are two lessons Paul teaches us in these verses, 16 through 18. You can see them as subpoints. Subpoint Sub-point number one, walk by the Spirit and glorify God. And sub-point number two, walk by the Spirit and be under God's grace. So let's talk about these subpoints briefly. First, Paul says in verse 16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Paul says the same thing in another way, which I will explain a bit more later, but at the end of verse 17. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. And Paul gives us the reason, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they oppose each other. In other words, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit can't go together, can't coincide together, can't live together. They are diametrically, fundamentally hostile toward one another. Just as when you put two plus plus or minus minus ends of the magnet next to each other, they don't attract, they don't unite, they divide. But as I said a moment ago, that last phrase of verse 17 reminds us of a sobering reality, doesn't it? And I think it's one of the reasons why that last phrase is not so easy for us to interpret initially. The reason why so many biblical scholars are puzzled by the exact meaning of that phrase and offer various interpretations. It is because it's meant for us to contemplate upon it, meditate on it slowly, for us to think about it very carefully. Look at the last part of verse 17 again. It says this. For these desires of the flesh and desires of the spirit are opposed to each other. Here it is to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now think about that. Why is the fact that flesh and spirit are against each other for the purpose of keeping you and me from doing the things you and I want to do? Think about that. What is it that is keeping us from doing the things we want to do? And what are the things that we want to do? Think about it. Well, Paul makes it clear from the context and the thrust of this pericope, it's because we are by nature, not of the spirit, but rather of the flesh. We by nature want to gratify the desires of the flesh. We by nature want to do what the flesh wants to do because we in our flesh are seeking to gratify ourselves, to satisfy ourselves rather than to glorify God, aren't we? These verses are reminding us of the reality of our natural state and the natural dispositions of our hearts and of our flesh. That the conflict between our flesh and the Spirit is strong in our lives. Of course, before we are saved, we are completely dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says. But even after our conversion, opposition between flesh and the Spirit is normal. And daily in the Christian life, the struggle is real. Can I get an amen? Any of you feel the tension, the struggle, the pressure of the flesh and the spirit on a regular basis? But the truth is this, as Tom Schreiner points out, the Christian life is not marked by perfection, but war. Amen? The Christian life is not marked by perfection, but war. A Christian is not one who has arrived in perfect righteousness on this side of heaven. A Christian is one who is presently and actively waging war against the flesh. Hence Paul's exhortation, walk by the Spirit. This verb suggests a relationship of dynamic interaction and direction and purpose. And the present tense of the imperative, walk connotes a present activity, a currently ongoing activity in progress. One of my favorite baby furniture, I don't know what you call it, baby development learning apparatus was something called Three in One Around We Go Activity Center. Look it up on Amazon. Not right now. Three in One Around We Go Activity Center, where you place a baby in one part where it's stationary with all these learning activities. You can like press buttons and it plays music and stuff. And the other part where you sit the baby so that the baby could stand and walk around in circles. Three in One. Around we go, Activity Center. Well, this little contraption was so useful and helpful because it holds up the baby and guides the baby to essentially teach the baby how to walk. Anyways, I thought this thing was so funny and I learned this from my aunt years ago when she was helping my cousin raise her baby years ago before I had babies of my own. Basically, if you want to teach a baby to walk in this thing, you need to give the baby some encouragement or else the baby just kind of sits there because they don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't know that they're supposed to walk around. Anyways, my aunt, every time she would put my nephew Micah in this thing, she would say this silly chant, walking, 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 walking. And at first Micah is just sitting there bored and uncomfortable, but then as my aunt would continue this silly chant, walking, 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 louder and more energetically, the baby soon gets really excited and starts running around in circles enthusiastically like little Speedy Gonzales, spinning around in circles, round and round, walking, 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 walking. Let me tell you, you don't know what a lifesaver this thing was for all three of our babies, for lazy parents like me, walking, 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 walking. (laughs) Anyways, this is the kind of picture Paul gives us when he exhorts Galatians, Christians, to walk by the Spirit. It means to be led by the Spirit, to go where the Spirit is going, to listen to His voice, To discern his will, to follow his guidance. Because without the Spirit's help, we don't know how to walk in faith. We would try in our own fleshly efforts, as the Galatians were attempting to do, having been born of the Spirit, they were trying to be perfected by the flesh, as Paul rebuked them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. We would wander off track, or we would be complacent, wouldn't we? Only by the Spirit's help. Only by the Spirit's guidance, we won't gratify our flesh, but rather glorify our God. Only by the Spirit's power, we are kept from doing the things our flesh wants to do. But the point of Paul's exhortation is not one of discouragement at all, brothers and sisters. It's one of great encouragement and of great hope. As I already said, to not gratify our flesh means we get to glorify God by the power of His Holy Spirit. Paul's exhortation of the reality of the warring opposition of the flesh and the spirit in the Christian life is not fundamentally pessimistic at all. The language of opposition and of war is not meant to dissuade us in our faith. Rather, it means to point us to the certain promise. Walk by the spirit and you will not you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the spirit and he will keep you from doing the things that the flesh wants. Amen? Paul is reminding the Galatians and us. Of the amazing gift of this new age under the new covenant. Of the great gift of the Holy Spirit, which now belongs to us as believers of Christ. And the great encouragement of this promise is stated more clearly in verse 18, isn't it? Which is the second lesson, the 2nd subpoint. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So 2nd subpoint. Walk by the Spirit and be under God's grace. When you yield to the Spirit, you will not live under the dominion of the law in sin. Which Paul has been teaching to the Galatians, that to subject oneself under the law is to be under a curse, is to be in bondage, is to be in slavery and ultimately death. The truth is, the old covenant demands no longer reigns over believers because of what Christ has accomplished by his death and by his resurrection. As Dr. Treiner says again, believers now enjoy a substantial, significant, observable, I would add, tangible victory in their new life in Christ. Although perfection is not our portion, in the already-but-not-yet state that believers live in today, yet we get to experience the first fruits of the Spirit and are a new creation again. So Paul is optimistic about the new life that is possible for the saints of Galatia and for you and me. Amen? And this is why, again, this incredible promise and encouragement and lesson that Paul shares, when we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law, but under grace, in God's grace, in His Spirit... The Spirit of Christ. When we fall, we don't fall into damnation and condemnation forever. We fall on grace. And we can stand up again by God's grace. And we persevere in God's grace. As the hymn says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. Grace, grace, grace. God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the promise and the hope and the reality of those who walk by the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this afternoon, how are you doing walking by the Spirit? How are you doing glorifying God by the power of Of the spirit rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh. How are you doing living by God's grace and not by the law? Not trying to attempt to grow spiritually by your own efforts, growing discontent and discouraged and dissatisfied and depressed. Perhaps this is exactly what describes your spiritual state today. One brother recently confessed to me asking for prayer that he feels spiritually bankrupt. And I wonder if this brother or perhaps if you are feeling this way also whether you are walking by the Spirit or if you are walking in the flesh. Well, if you're asking yourself or thinking to yourself, I'm not sure, how can I know whether I am walking in the Spirit or not? Whether I am being led by the Spirit or subjecting myself to the desires of the flesh or not? Well, that's exactly the reason why Paul provides a helpful list for self-examination in verses 19 and 21, doesn't he? The phrase at the end of this list of vices And things like these tells us this list is not an exhaustive list, but it gives us a very good start to examine ourselves with. Paul says it very directly, very specifically. If you're not walking in the Spirit, the works of the flesh are evident. If you're not walking in the Spirit, the works of the flesh are obvious. It's not difficult to tell, you see, which path you are taking. It's not hard to tell whether you are walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit. He's saying we have no excuse not to know. It is evident. Again, the list is not everything, but the 15 things that Paul lists can be divided into four categories of sinful fleshly living. First category, sexual sins. Second category, as you see, spiritual sins. Third category, sins against the corporate body. And fourth, sins against one's own body. Now, I'm not going to take too much time in detail about this list for the sake of time, but I'm just going to give you an overview. Look at the first category. Of works of the flesh in verse 19 sexual immorality impurity sensuality this category of sins means to cover all forms of sexual sins outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman as the bible prescribes for marriage so fornication adultery polygamy homosexuality bestiality pornography masturbation lust perversion promiscuity it's all covered by these three descriptions Paul is addressing the lack of restraint and unbridled passion of sexual license as a clear evidence of one who does not live by the Spirit, nor are of the Spirit. Such a person is actually in bondage to sin and the law. The next pair, in verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. It addresses spiritual sins regarding the refusal to worship the one true God. Idolatry is, of course, the sin of worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, Or it's describing covetousness when the things that we desire in our hearts takes priority over God. Whether that's money, power, recognition, alcohol, drugs, marriage, sex, spouse, children, whatever it is that becomes your God, your priority over God. That's what it's describing as idolatry. Sorcery is the manipulation of circumstances to bring about the end that you desire. Its root meaning, the word literally means drug, It's where we derive our English word pharmacy. And in the Greek, the word refers to the use of drugs, whether for medicinal or for more sinister purposes, for example, for poisoning. And in the New Testament, did you know that the word is rendered witchcraft, the idea of dealing with black magic or demonic control? And get this, these occult practices of sorcery usually involved abortifacient drugs, drugs that committed infanticide or euthanasia, which was considered in those days as murderous acts. They were flagrant violations of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me just pause right there and make a clear connection and application to the present day. Isn't it crazy how the sin of sexual immorality leads to idolatry and sorcery linked to abortion and assisted suicide? Isn't that the modern phenomena of our day? The LGBTQIA movements has become the god of this generation, hasn't it? My body. My rights, my choice have become the mantra of our culture. It's so crazy how the two are linked together. And the movement is not subtle about it. It's very clear. They are against God. They opposed the Christian God. Have you seen those banners and shirts in the pride parades? Satan loves LGBTQIA. Not today, Jesus with rainbow flags all over. This culture completely misses the point that the true meaning of the rainbow is actually a reminder of God's judgment against sin and idolatry and a promise of mercy for those who would look to God's Messiah for the forgiveness of sins and for salvation. No wonder the next category of sins against the neighbor, against the corporate body is addressed. enmities, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And I should note, six of these eight sins noted here are addressed in the plural form. They are sins we committed against one another. They are works that divide the body and oppose unity. Let me just point a few out. Enmities refer to any hatred regarding political, racial, or religious hostility. Again, crazy how these things are all tied together, aren't they? And how our culture today is such a clear reflection of how these works of the flesh exist together, flow together, isn't it? Divisions include heresy. It's what the Judaizers were insisting on. Doctrine that was contrary to the true gospel. Doctrine that attempted to add to the gospel, seeking to reverse and undo what Christ had done on the cross. And it's what so many false teachers continue to do today with their gospel plus preaching. Gospel plus works. Gospel plus LGBTQ. Gospel plus social justice. Gospel plus racial justice. Whatever one tries to add to the gospel that takes equal weight with the gospel is not the gospel. It opposes the gospel. It's an enemy of the gospel. It destroys true doctrine. It undermines true community. It's not Christian. It's not the true church. And finally, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the descriptions of a category of sins, which are sins against one's own body. Sins of access. The Bible does not forbid drinking, of course, but it does repeat, doesn't it? that drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Not merely from alcohol, but whatever causes one to not be sober. Whatever causes one to lose self-control and be under its influence. If it causes you to stumble others, the Bible says, woe to you. And orgies, which covers wild parties and horsing around and carousing. It's all related to each other and in our own day where the abuse of alcohol and drugs has contributed to marital infidelity, child and spousal abuse, erosion of family life, and moral chaos in society. Throughout these verses, Paul is leading us down 15 steps into the pit of depravity and is showing us the ugly reality of the works of the flesh. Paul says, there is no mistake in what they are. It is clear. These are of the flesh. There is no excuse And to drive these works of the flesh in the coffin for the Galatians and for the Christians today, Paul exhorts in the last part of verse 21. Look at verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is stating the obvious and clear warning while good works cannot get someone into heaven, while good works cannot get someone into heaven, evil deeds can certainly keep someone out of it. While good works cannot get someone into heaven, evil deeds can certainly keep someone out of it. Because the one who is, is enslaved by sin and is still under the law and is still under the curse. People who do the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hence the point is made, isn't it? Walk in the flesh and live in bondage Rather, as Christians, as believers of Christ's death and resurrection, walk in the Spirit, live in freedom. That's point number one. Walk in the Spirit and live in freedom. But there's more encouragement and helpful exhortation in this passage. The bad news has to come before the good. And so what we can really know and understand why it is good news, why it is the gospel, is point number two. So how can we live by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Much shorter point, point number two. Be in step with the Spirit and live in unity. Be in step with the Spirit and live in unity. Verses 22 through 26. And so Paul, in contrasting the work of the flesh and the list of vices that he just outlined, lists a list of virtues in verses 22 and 23. And contrary to the disorder and the disorganization and the chaotic and incomplete list of vices, 15 of them in threes, in twos, in eights, and in two, the following virtues are presented in balance and in symmetry in three sets of three. And not to over-exegete or read into the meaning of these numbers, but I think it's safe to say Paul intends to communicate the perfect, complete, and beautiful work of the Holy Spirit in believers by showing us the fruit of the Spirit expressed in three triads. Three, which is, of course, the number of the divine trinity signifying the perfect unity and loving relationship which exists between God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now again, we don't want to read too much into this list and its meaning, but one theologian John Stott interprets the following categorization of the nine graces as such. The first 3 describes the believer's attitude to God: love, joy, and peace. The second 3 to other people: patience, kindness, and goodness. And the third 3 of oneself: faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now again, I don't have time to get too much into the detail of each of these virtues, so just an overview. What's clear is that these virtues are different from spiritual gifts. They are not distinct, separate qualities a Christian should develop or cultivate. They are the natural result of someone who is born of the Spirit. That is why they are the fruit of the Spirit and not fruits. Fruit, singular. And that is why they are the fruit and not the works of the Spirit. Someone who is of God, who is of the Spirit, should be characterized by all nine of these qualities, by this fruit of the Spirit. What this means is someone can be a particularly loving person. They just love all sorts of things, like dogs and cats and hamsters. They, they love all people. Can't we just get along type of person? But it doesn't mean they truly know what love is in the biblical sense, does it? Someone can be loving, but lack peace in their hearts, as a loving person's attitude can change once they find out that they are diagnosed with terminal cancer. But a Christian who is of the Spirit is characterized by all the different facets of the fruit of the Spirit. A Christian, hence, can be diagnosed with a deadly disease, yet hold fast to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because these are not the works of the flesh They are not the product of human strength. We can't conjure these things up, but the evidence of the Spirit's work in us. It's what God does in us. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 23, against such things, there is no law. What this means is there is no law that prohibits That limits the fruit of the Spirit. No one can find fault in them. There is no limit to them whatsoever. They are poured out by God unto us without measure generously. Hallelujah. Of course, we are still here on earth, growing in sanctification, in holiness, and we will not be perfectly holy. No one will portray all these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit perfectly on this side of heaven. But one thing is for sure, as one commentator says, good works are not the basis of justification. But they are most certainly, those still imperfect and partial, are a consequence or the result of justification. Remember, we are under grace. There is no legalism here. That's why Paul says later in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's kind of like how our third child, Emmet, our baby, can do no wrong. He's four years old, but still sucks his thumb. And comes into our bed in the middle of the night many times, multiple times. And wakes us up super early in the morning. He can be grumpy. He can be angry. But why is he so, to me at least, so darn cute? Because he's my baby. Generally speaking, of course, this is not a perfect example. But I hope you get the point. In the Son, Jesus Christ, we are not judged by our sweat nor our service, but our sonship. In the Son, Jesus Christ. We are not judged by our sweat nor our service, but by our sonship. Simply, having been adopted as sons and daughters of God through Christ, we are no longer slaves. We are saints. That is our status. That is cemented, and it's certain. Notice how this happens in verse 24. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's interesting here that Paul uses the active form of the verb crucified, which emphasizes that believers have themselves crucified the flesh. The believers have themselves crucified the flesh. What does this mean? Given what Paul states in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You guys remember that verse? I said it so many times in our previous sermons. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is identifying us as ones who have been crucified with Christ. And furthermore, in the evidence of that faith, of that reality, by the result of the Spirit working in us, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires at our conversion in obedience to Jesus' command when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What it's doing is it's describing the necessity, brothers and sisters, and the ongoing process and decision of a Christian wrought by, led by, guided by the Holy Spirit and us actively putting sin to death. It's what John Owens describes in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, where Owens says famously, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Furthermore, Owens says, The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin in their lives. The vigor, the power, and the comfort of our spiritual life depends on you, depends on me, depends on us, on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Hence, crucifying the flesh does not mean... That believers do not feel the tug of fleshly desires. It does not mean Christians will not sometimes fail in sin or fall into temptation. This is good news and hope for you. So listen. Yet defeat and complacency and ultimately death is not a prolonged or a permanent state for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is why Martin Luther famously said, all of the Christian life is repentance. It's a daily turning from sin and trusting in the good news of Jesus, not merely once, but every single day. That's why, as Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs, the basics of Christianity. It is the A through Zs. Hallelujah. Christians can certainly feel discouraged and depressed, that is for sure. But as the psalmist cries out in Psalm 22, from the depths, from the dire depths of sorrows and affliction, Christians can worship God in the dirt like the promised one did. Why? Because that is the powerful message of the gospel. We are ones not without hope, even in the midst of trials and afflictions, even in the face of opposition, even in the pressure of temptation, even when enemies surround, we know one who has been crucified and has risen on our behalf. We know the one who is victorious over sin, Satan, and death, once and for all. And brothers and sisters, those of us who know this truth know the good news of Jesus Christ, don't we? The best news that you will ever hear. That a holy and a righteous God had a plan from the very beginning to save a people for himself who would come to know his great and awesome and amazing redeeming love through his son Jesus Christ, the prophesied one of the Old Testament who is truly God and truly man who came to fulfill all of God's promises. And he lived a sinless life. And he died the sacrificial substitute death on the cross. And he satisfied completely to the last drops the wrath of God against all sin. But he didn't remain dead, did he? On the third day he rose again just as it was written and just as Jesus himself said he would be raised. And so this proved who Jesus was certainly. The son of God who was with God, who was God, who dwelt among us, who ascended into heaven as the king of kings and lord of lords who reigns sovereignly still today. Hallelujah. It is by his spirit. It is by his very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We know him. We believe him. And we love Him and we live for Him today and tomorrow and forevermore. Hallelujah. It is by the Spirit's work and power in us we have crucified the flesh and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, and visitors, if you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, I wonder if you know this good news today, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Him is life. In Him is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Apart from him is chaos and confusion and misery, but more than that, certain death. And beyond that, judgment and forever hell. If you reject God's mercy by rejecting his son, that's the result. So I implore you today, I exhort you today, I challenge you today. This is an invitation from God to you. You're not here by coincidence, you're not here by mistake. Repent of your sins. That means turn from trusting in the things of this world or yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. And trust in Him today with whatever is facing you, whatever sorrows, whatever affliction. Trust in Him today with your whole life and tomorrow. And the day after that, walk, walk, walk. Be led by His Spirit. He will be with you. He promises us. He will never forsake us or leave us. He will carry us. He will persevere us. He will love you to the end. John 13. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, the elders would be happy to talk to you at the close of service at the back doors. Or you can talk to someone smiling next to you. We are eager to share with you the joy, the amazing joy of following Jesus Christ. Don't leave this place without knowing how you can Let's conclude. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, especially the members of New Covenant Baptist Church, what great joy and amazing graces we have had the privilege of experiencing together in these last few years, three years. How faithful our Lord has been to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our midst through new brothers and sisters in Christ being converted. Formerly unchurched or de churched folks or nominal Christians committing to grow and serve together in covenant with this church body. Praise the Lord. What wonderful graces we have gone to witness in the spiritual growth and maturity of believers under the ministry of the word and through the discipling relationships of this local church body. What wonderful encouragements I hear from visitors of our church that we have one of the most encouraging members, that's you, to welcome them, to talk to them who are eager and hungry for God's word and eager to share their love for him and for his church. As we look forward to year four and five and six and seven or 10 or however long the Lord may tarry, Let us, in accordance with verse 26, follow these words. Know these words. Live by these words. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That means let's continue to follow the Spirit's leading. It's a picture of a military brigade marching in step with one another to accomplish a mission. Let's not become conceited. This means let's continue to remain humble. Let's continue to be in the Word. Continue to be amazed by the Gospel. By knowing and growing and sharing the Gospel. Let us not provoke one another or envy one another. This means let's continue to commit to one another. Let's see the best in one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's understand one another. Let's be patient with one another. It means let's serve one another. Consider others better than ourselves. Let's love one another as we love ourselves, as we love Christ, as we love His church. Amen? In Christ alone, let's walk in the Spirit and live in freedom and tell others about it eagerly. Passionately, zealously. Let's be in step with the Spirit and live in unity that others will know that we are the sons and daughters of the true and living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and for your faithfulness in our lives. Father, the works of the flesh is death, the fruit of the Spirit is life and joy and hope. Father, help us to repent, which means to simply confess that we can't do this without you. Apart from the work of the Spirit among us, this is impossible. But thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who has been crucified. And Father, thank you for the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, where we can be crucified with Him and to rise with Him. Father, help us to share this glorious gospel until you return. And if there's anybody here in this room, help them to believe and trust and walk in step with the Spirit, we pray. For your glory and our good, build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.